For God's sake, buy some toilet paper. Welcome to the Get Real About Safety podcast, where we discuss the new view of safety, the things that work, the things that don't work, and try to break down old view paradigms to help you improve safety performance in your organization. Hi, I'm Mike McCarroll. And I am Pam Fisher. Good morning. I hope everyone out there is staying safe. Here at ProSafe, we are basically shut down. No one is doing live training, including our classes at Georgia Tech that have been canceled through the end of April. We have one upcoming course at Georgia Tech that will be done in a virtual online format, and that is the Advanced Safety Management course, May 5th through 8th. We are also doing virtual training through ProSafe for both regulatory training, except of course for the OSHA 10 and 30 hour. We're doing safety management and human performance. We've had requests for virtual event learning training, holding event learning team sessions, and consulting, and we'll also be offering that service. Please check out our website for what is available. In light of the COVID-19 pandemic, we thought this might be a good time to talk about resilience. So what is that? One definition of resilience is the ability to survive a crisis and thrive in a world of uncertainty. Or it's the ability to quickly recover from difficulties or unexpected events. It is the ability to cope in spite of setbacks. Now, as applied to an organization, here's another definition. It is the ability to anticipate, prepare for, respond, and adapt to disruptions. Because here's the bottom line. Adversity is a fact of life. We need to change our thinking from what if it happens to when it happens. By changing our thinking, it allows us to better anticipate and respond. Resilience applies not only to your business model, but also to your personal life. We fear that a lot of folks were not prepared for this worldwide emergency, so the subject is timely. On a personal note, I'm busy planting this year's vegetable garden, and I've got some sourdough starter happening. I grew up in a rural Washington state, and I lived on both a small island off the northern coast, as well as in Mattawa, which is a speck on the map of eastern Washington with a population about 200, and an hour drive to a grocery store if the weather allows. I learned early to always have a minimum of a month's worth of food. Typically, I would garden, glean, can, and dry food throughout the summer, so I was set for the entire winter. Some of you might know what gleaning is. Basically, that means that when the farmers were done harvesting on the large farms, they would open it up to the community to take whatever was left by the big machines. My grandfather and I would head out to the potato fields with his old pickup truck. In a very short period of time, we would fill the entire back of that truck. Different way of life, for sure. People make fun of me for still following that lifestyle, but in times like this, I'm glad I grew up that way. To understand resilience, we first have to understand the difference between prevention and recovery. We're pretty good at prevention, but we're not real good at the recovery part. And in fact, prevention efforts tend to get in the way of recovery efforts. From a safety standpoint, we tend to put way too many eggs in the prevention basket, and we don't do enough preparation for what if those prevention efforts fail. Overemphasis on prevention can create a false sense of security. And in fact, it erodes recovery or safeguard thinking. 
We tend to think that we can predict everything and we base prevention efforts around those predictions. However, here's the fact. We can't predict everything. We can't prevent everything. We can only hope to create systems that help us to minimize the consequence. We have to control the outcome. You don't manage things that are uncertain. You manage things that are certain. We can only manage the capacity that we have in our organization to have an accident that fails gracefully. Or, another way to put that, is making it safer to fail. Failure is a given. Ultimately, things will fail. Ultimately, prevention efforts will fail. It's just a matter of when that occurs. Serious failures, and especially the ones that get people killed, happen in one of three different ways. Either the absence of controls, or insufficient controls, or an event beyond prediction. In other words, it is unimaginable. This is often where catastrophic events occur, and in fact, isn't that where we are today with this COVID-19 virus. So let's talk about the difference between controls, barriers, and safeguards. Controls are preventative efforts such as procedures, policies, and rules. Barriers keep someone isolated from a hazard, things like guardrails, floor hole covers, and machine guards. Both of these fall into the area of prevention. However, safeguards minimize the severity of events that still occur in spite of those controls or barriers. They tend to mitigate harm or provide a way of escape and improve the chance of recovery. They come into play after something goes wrong. You know, a good example of this is things like sprinkler systems, uh, EMS services, crash bars on exit doors. Most organizations tend to do a pretty good job with controls and barriers, but we don't tend to do a good job with safeguards. To be effective, at designing safeguards, it's a good idea to be able to visualize the difference between preventative efforts and recovery efforts, or the safeguards. One of the most effective ways to create a visualization is what's called a bow tie, or in our case, a tool called the bow tie analysis. We all know what a bow tie looks like, so if you were to draw a bow tie on a piece of paper and the center of that bow tie would be the risk. The left side of the bow tie is the preventative efforts to prevent the harm from that risk. The right side of the bow tie, however, is the recovery efforts or the safeguards that are going to be put in place so that if the preventative efforts fail, we have a way to recover gracefully. Optimally, you want your bow tie to be balanced. You want the right side of the bow tie to be just as large as the left side of the bow tie. Unfortunately, because of this overfocus on prevention, in most organizations, the left side of the bow tie is much larger than the right side. The right side is very small or, in some cases, non-existent. In other words, it's a very unbalanced bow tie. Probably the easiest way to visualize what I'm talking about is to think about two events that have occurred in the past couple of years. In Seattle there was a tower crane collapse. In Miami, there was a pedestrian walk bridge that collapsed. In both of these events, there was some absence of control, there was some insufficiency of control, but by and large, they had general controls in place. However, on the right side of the bow tie, 
they had nothing. In Seattle, a tower crane was being dismantled over live traffic on a Saturday morning. Even though they had safety programs in place and supposedly qualified people in place, an insufficiency of controls was happening in that iron workers were taking pins out of the tower prematurely rather than following the manufacturer's instructions of dismantling the tower sections one section at a time. That was bad enough, but the problem was this was being done over live traffic. Had the right side of the bow tie been considered, the street would have been shut down. There would have been no possibility for further damage and catastrophic event outcomes to take place. The Miami Bridge collapse was almost identical. Even though some of the controls were failing, there was no right side of the bow tie. This walk bridge was being built over an eight-lane highway with live traffic underneath. This was also a brand new prototype project. When things began to fail, and in the face of uncertainty, they continued on. Now, that's bad enough, but again, had the right side of the bow tie been considered, that street would have never been open to start with in face of doing a new technique that had never been no done before and things going wrong in the process. So think about this in your own operations, in safety, and in any area of safety in your own operations. By doing a bow tie analysis, it helps us to identify critical steps. A critical step is an action that will trigger immediate, irreversible, and intolerant harm if performed improperly. Some things have to go right the first time they are performed. To be a critical step, it must have a point of no return or be irreversible. Talking about critical steps makes the risk more specific. It makes it more real. By identifying those critical steps, we can then start to think about what if preventative efforts go wrong during these critical steps? Some examples of critical steps are things like a surgeon making an incision just before surgery, performing energized electrical work that could interrupt electricity to a hospital, entering a confined space, disassembling a tower crane, fall prevention tie-off, doing a critical crane lift. By identifying critical steps, in the tasks that your workers do, we can then define critical controls, any barriers that need to be in place, but more importantly, the safeguards that need to be in place if those things go wrong. So I guess it's important that we also define a critical control. Examples of that would be verifying the absence of voltage during electrical work, verification of lockout and tagout, uh, atmospheric testing, and rescue in confined spaces, peer check of fall arrest systems, calculating clearance distances, and ensuring rescue equipment is available. Once we've done that, then we need to ask the question, is this enough? And not what if it fails, but when it fails, what are we going to do? What is the right side of the bow tie? What are the safeguards that we're going to put in place for recovery? By having sufficient safeguards in place, and talking about them and planning for them up front allows organizations to be much more resilient and it allows workers to know what they're supposed to do when things go wrong. We tend to do JSAs or pre-work briefings or a combination thereof to identify hazards and controls. What we don't do enough of is identify what can fail 
and how to recover if those preventative efforts go wrong. Relying on things like see, stop, and do is reactive. We have to make it safe to start. That's proactive. Many organizations are moving to a stance of make it safe to start rather than over-reliance on stop work authority. Now, don't get me wrong. Stop work authority is good. It is a human performance tool, and you do want workers to stop in the face of uncertainty. However, we rely way too heavily on stop work authority. If your organization relies on stop work as a prevention strategy, that means that every other prevention strategy in your organization has failed. The other part of that is that because of the unpredictability of events, stop work authority may be completely ineffective. If workers knew what the outcome was going to be, they wouldn't have done it. And if they knew what the outcome was going to be, they would stop work anyway. They don't have to have stop work authority. So why not empower the workers to have the power to not start a job if the appropriate controls, barriers, and safeguards are not present or engaged? So how does all this tie back to the COVID-19 situation? Globally, we were not prepared for this. We have done a lot of what-if thinking rather than when-it-happens thinking. As a result of that, the whole world has been caught by surprise. Tens of thousands of people are dying. We've been caught without enough PPE, ventilators, medical capacity, food, toilet paper, cleaning supplies, etc. Had we been anticipating when a pandemic happens, and had we been prepared for that, we would be better able to adapt. The current political tug of war between protecting our people and protecting the economy has some asking the cost of protecting people. The real question is what is the cost of society if we don't protect the people? How resilient can the economy be if the virus is not controlled? Economically, we have not anticipated the impact of this virus. Trillions of dollars have been borrowed for things that do not lend themselves to preparation and left us and the world without the capacity to thrive in these times. As a result, the negative economic impact will be felt for generations to come. On a more positive note, we know that after this virus has passed, we should all have a new respect for the need for resiliency and balancing our bow ties in both our personal and business lives. Consider doing a review of your own personal and business resiliency plans and determine how you will change those going forward. Follow the recommendations of your local government, the CDC, and protect others. Hashtag flatten the curve. Adapt and overcome. We are all in this together, and we will be stronger when this is passed. Music